the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, OnScript listeners, Matt Lynch here, coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a host of OnScript along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and now Jules Martinez-Olivieri. Yes, you heard that right. We've got a new co-host, Jules Martinez-Olivieri, who is now Milton B. and Gebertson Chair in Evangelism and Justice at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. And we're thrilled to have Jules join us as a host. He's our second theology-focused co-host so Amy is no longer alone in that respect. Uh, but we've always tried on this podcast to bridge biblical studies and theology, and so that's no different now that Jules is on board. In fact, it's strengthened. And he has a deep and rich familiarity with Latino uh, theology and, and mission and ministry. And he's the author of A Visible Witness, Christology, Liberation, and Participation, He's got two forthcoming books, Contemporary Theologies and Social Justice, as well as Deep Hope, an Introduction to Christian Theology. He's got a BA in Anthropology from the University of Puerto Rico. He earned his MDiv and PhD at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So I'd like to say welcome once again to Jules. He's hosting his first episode here with Leopoldo Sanchez. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy having him as a co-host on the podcast now. So uh, we're thrilled about that. Also, a quick reminder that we've started another podcast called Biblical World. Check it out, especially if you're interested in the culture, history, and archaeology of the Bible. Okay, enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the OnScript podcast. My name is Jules Martinez Olivieri, and I'm the new co-host of OnScript, coming to you from North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. I am so excited to be part of the team, and today I am speaking with my colleague and friend, Dr. Leopoldo Sanchez. He is the Werner and Elizabeth Cross Professor of Hispanic Ministries at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, where he also teaches systematic theology. He's a professor of systematic theology and director of the Center for Hispanic Studies. His newest book, which is the subject of our interview today, is Sculpture Spirit Models of Sanctification from Spirit Christology, published by IVP Academic. And you can also put on your cart his next upcoming book, TNT Clark Introduction to Spirit Christology, coming out later this year. Leo, welcome to the podcast on script. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jules. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's so good to be with you. Well, Leo, I hear that you are a globe trotter that you teach in the United States, but also in many other places. I was checking uh, some of your past schedules. You've been to Uganda, you to, you, Brazil, Cuba, India. You've been, you've been all over the place. Yes, but the highlight, I think, was uh, spending time with you in Puerto Rico. <laughs> your, your neck of the woods. And uh, yes, I have been very fortunate to be able to, uh, you know, teach and also learn from the church around the world. 
on those uh, travels. And uh, yes, it's really one of the highlights of uh, my uh, work over the years. I love it. I love it. Um, uh, Leo, uh, I also hear that you're uh, the principal double bass player with the San Luis Civic Orchestra, right? Yes. So you're a pro. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I started uh, uh, going to the conservatory. Uh, in Panama, where I uh, grew up. I was born mm -hmm. in Chile, uh, my mother's motherland, but I grew up in Panama. And so I had an early love of music. Mm. And so I would go to school in the morning, and then in the afternoons, I would go to conservatory afterwards. And I started on the cello, and then uh, the double bass player sort of recruited me. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. I've been playing the double bass here and there, mostly classical. And then later in life, started doing more with Latin music and with uh, jazz and things like that. So that's been a joy to rejoice in God's gift of music. Love it. Love it. So to begin with, can you share with us how you understand theology, how theology has been part of your own journey and um, also if there are a moment or two that stand out in that journey well i see the the task of theology uh, very much uh, in terms of kind of the openness to rejoice in god's gift of his word And when I speak that way, I almost imagine kind of a kid in a candy store, if that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's so much, you know, uh, that God has given to us uh, in his word and in the church's thinking about his word uh, over uh, the course of history. That it's like entering, you know, a candy store. Uh, where you find all kinds of goodies. Hmm. And so I think in some ways the task of the theologian is to revel in that goodness and that richness and that depth and uh, with a certain humble curiosity, you know. And so I feel like I'm always learning, uh, even though my main vocation is that of a teacher, You know, I, I see the task of theology as, as one of worship, really, where, where one receives from God his gifts and then responds to those gifts, you know, in prayer, in proclamation, in teaching, in thanksgiving, praise, in love, and so on. Uh, so, you know, kid in a candy store, receiving from God the goodies and then uh, sharing those goodies Uh, with others, you know. So, so to me, that's kind of the image that comes in. I remember, I think it was uh, Jürgen Moltmann, someone asking what uh, his gift of the spirit was, was, and he said something like curiosity. Uh, <laughs> I think there is something about being a theologian, you know, that uh, requires uh, that as the spirit's own gift uh, to us. And uh, in terms of highlights, you know, I think The place where this uh, joy of receiving and giving and, you know, the, of exchanging um, 
God's gifts with others uh, has really been honed in uh, my work in the United States with uh, migrants, particularly uh, students who come from an immigrant background, because uh, theology has, uh, you know, taken the, the task of answering to the cries and the hopes, you know, of uh, brothers and sisters who often find themselves asking, where is God in the midst of my, my journey, you know? So I think there's a certain seriousness also to theology because we're dealing with people's real lives. And uh, being a theologian, doing uh, the work of teaching in context where uh, people have uh, real needs and questions um, has, I think, sensitized me also to the uh, seriousness of what we do and how it affects people's lives and how it can encourage people during uh, tough uh, times. And uh, walking, flying around the world, teaching around the world has also taught me that because many times there's our churches in the global south, you know, that uh, have so much to offer us and at the same time, uh, you know, also suffer much for the sake of the gospel and so on. So that's a little bit of that uh, journey into theology. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate your highlighting. Something that usually theologians don't do is that your phrase, humble curiosity, mm. um, and also the seriousness of the task of theology um, as a way of searching in light of the cries and hopes of the people. Thank you for highlighting that. Um, now, when we turn to your book, um, I'd like to begin by setting up your argument at the beginning of the book. And let me see if I can read a quote here from what I take to, what I take to be your thesis. Spirit Christology, which looks at the role of God's spirit in Jesus' life and mission, provides a theological framework for articulating a model space approach to sanctification that can assist pastors and church leaders to engage the spiritual hopes and struggles of neighbors in and outside of the church, especially in the North American context. Now, there's a, a lot there. Uh, can you help us uh, uh, with this uh, and, and kind of unpack it? Yeah, I was thinking I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, it's, uh, it's really a journey into the theology, you know, the person and work of the Holy Spirit and uh, how the Spirit shapes, uh, forms, makes us into certain kinds of persons. You know, so I, I was very much thinking in terms of formative language and being a theological educator, you know, we're, we're given the responsibility to form and shape uh, students uh, for ministry, the image of the Spirit as forming us uh, was very much always uh, in my mind as I was writing this book. And a Spirit Christology, which as the term indicates, deals with the presence and activity of the Spirit in and with Christ, uh, gives us really a good biblical theological framework to think about the spirit's formation of persons 
uh, because when you look at biblical uh, narratives on Christ uh, receiving and bearing of the Spirit, uh, you'll see how these narratives conclude or come to fulfillment in Christ's giving of the Spirit. So he who bears the Spirit gives the Spirit to others. And so a Spirit Christology sort of tracks the movement of the Spirit, uh, you know, with Christ and then through Christ to us. And so it's ideal for speaking about how we share in Christ's Spirit to describe how the Spirit forms or shapes Christ in and through us. So it's very uh, kind of... uh, participatory Christology, if you want to put it that way. So, you know, it doesn't simply describe who Christ is, but it also invites us into Christ's own life and mission in the Spirit. And the image that kept coming back to me was that of a sculptor, you know, the sculptor who sort of uh, works to uh, shape and form the, you know, the clay, right? Uh, the mass, you know, like a sculptor would, in order to give us um, the form of Christ. And so, you know, that's how I came across Spirit Christology um, already when I was a doctoral student, and I found it to be a very um, rich framework to be able to speak about Christ-like formation. Yes, yes, yes. You know, the image of sculpture is so suggestive. And in many uh, Latino, Latina traditions in the United States and also in uh, Latin America and churches, uh, we have even hymns that talk about the sculpture. Tu eres el alfarero. You are Mm -hmm. the sculptor. Uh, You are the one who gives us shape. And of course, inspired through Jeremiah and things like that. so it is it is not only a metaphor but it's visually uh engaging um now as you mentioned spirit christology or are you comfortable with saying that spirit christology is we can say or frame it as a pneumatic christology or uh a christology filled uh, with the spirit <laughs> um i i say that because um if our, our listeners are aware, we, we uh, in the last, you know, uh, from the half of the last century all the way through the 20th century, um, the renaissance of Trinitarian theology came also with a concomitant renaissance, which is the, the renaissance of the of a theology of the third article. Uh, that is a theology that retrieves uh, the third person of the Trinity within the opera dei personalia, that is the triune work of God. Um, is this part of that um, bringing to bear that Renaissance into a doctrine that is so treasured in so many Christian traditions like sanctification? Yes, no, that's, I think that's a great point, uh, Jules. The The Renaissance and Trinitarian theology definitely brought with it, uh, you know, a renewed appreciation uh, for the church's thinking about the spirit, both in the East and and the West, right? So breathing with both lungs, as the Catholic theologian Conger used to say. 
and uh, Vatican II, also, you know, in the Roman Catholic tradition, the idea of the return to the sources of the church's thinking, not only in the West, but also the East, that also brought kind of a renewal in the thinking of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we can even put in here the, the growth of Pentecostalism, right, and charismatic churches around the world. That also raises a question for other churches. What do we teach about the Holy Spirit? You know, what, what do we have to say about that? So I think when you put all those things together, all those movements, we do have, you know, reflection on then who Christ is from this third article angle, as it were, you know. And yes, what you get is a pneumatic presentation of Christ, and through Christ, an pneumatic presentation of the church. At the same time, you know, is one that does not have to be uh, seen as a Christology in, uh, in opposition, right, to uh, what I would call the classic uh, two natures Christology of the church councils, which has its place also in the history of the church, right? What sometimes I refer to as logos Christology, logos of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And, uh, and so I think that the trick and the task is to see how these two aspects of Christology integrate. And that's something that I largely worked on in my dissertation before this book came out. And a lot of spirit Christology tries to uh, kind of find room in the churches thinking about uh, Christ. Uh, yes, he is God, the Logos. He is uh, uh, you know, of the same uh, divine nature as the Father. Yes, only the Logos becomes flesh, but then also the Spirit remains on him, and he's the one who will baptize with the Spirit. So it's really both and. And so, you know, uh, I think maybe to use your words, we can inject or fill Christology with the Spirit. Uh, that would be a Logos Tunatius Christology still, Mm -hmm. but with that pneumatic aspect and trajectory and 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 feeling as you put it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um you know i really appreciate in your book before you enter into different models uh which by the way i just find very helpful not only for pedagogical reasons but also because models or typologies but in this case models provide us frameworks for identifying some of the salient characteristics within the traditions that we already are. And, and many times we just don't realize that we are operating within the influence of a tradition that has certain emphases, certain strengths and limitations. Um, and before you enter into the, those models, you, you, you wanna make the reader conscious of the patristic testimony, for example, uh, you want to make the reader conscious of the catechetical uh, uh, testimony also. Uh, you know, catechism is that old word. It means a set of teachings uh, that were used to disciple people. So in one sense, it's a retrieval of a historical uh, testimony, bringing it to bear for with missional concerns, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, the... The kid in the candy store again, right? So I'm mm -hmm. trying to find a way to paint pictures mm -hmm. of 
you know, how we can think of the spirit's formation or sanctification, um, uh, formation of the of the believer. And so I'm I'm looking for images. I'm looking for uh, different ways of portraying, you know, like a mosaic uh, of of uh, of ways in which the scriptures, the church fathers, and I focus mostly on the fourth century. Uh, then I, you know, also bring in Martin Luther as a Reformation voice, and then some contemporary authors. So I'm looking for different uh, models, right? So they're inhabited by different narratives, you might say. They're inhabited by different catechetical or teaching emphases. Um, and uh, I felt that the models approach was helpful to get away from the idea that there's only a homogeneous way of thinking about sanctification. You know, like, we, as you noted, we come from different traditions, so maybe we emphasize theologically a certain image or picture. Uh, for instance, in my tradition, which is, you know, the, the evangelical Lutheran tradition, we tend to think of sanctification more in terms of death and resurrection, you know, dying with Christ, being raised to new life with Christ, and uh, because of that, that happens to be, you know, a strength, and it helps us deal with certain problems theologically and certain issues in the Christian life. But there are other ways in which sanctification, you know, is dealt with uh, in the scriptures and the great tradition, so to speak. And so I think it helps you to, uh, the model's approach, that is, helps you to appreciate the the richness uh, of sanctification uh, in terms of a variety of images, you know, and uh, to get away from the, this uh, this uh, homogeneous picture, there's only one way of talking about it, you know. So I think that was part of my concern and my use, my reason for using the models approach, and also it leaves things a bit open too, you know. Uh, it's an open-ended exploration, meaning that maybe you have other things you see in the biblical text, other things you see in the church fathers and mothers, you know, and maybe there are things that you see in your own uh, Reformation or post-Reformation traditions that should also be talked about. And so one of the things I say in the book is, hey, if you have another model or two, be my guest. You know, th this is just a way to get started. <laughs> you know, the candy store might actually be, have more candy than I'm able to see at any sure. point in time. So, you know, humble curiosity, I think, is embedded into the approach of the book. Yeah, and this is very helpful, which uh, helps us build a bridge to the next section of the book, which is basically your discussion of the five models. Mm -hmm. You discuss five models um, and begin with what you call baptize into death and life, the renewal model. That's the first one. Uh, can we enter into that discussion in which you can kind of uh, guide us through uh, what are the models about, what are the salient features uh, that you see and you identify and their strengths and contributions? Yeah, so the renewal model would be sort of the one I uh, am most familiar with. Uh, as I mentioned before, is the death and resurrection, Romans 6, picture of the Christian life. And, um, you know, it sort of pictures the, uh, the Christian life almost in a cyclical way. 
the Christian life is about contrition uh, for sin, dying with Christ, uh, dying, you know, to the desires of the flesh, uh, uh, in order to be raised to new life in Christ, with Christ, through the forgiveness of sins, for service in the world, and so on and so forth. And so I think what it it shows is the you know ongoing need for the gospel in the Christian life. You know, the uh, it, it deals particularly well with the problem of guilt. Uh, uh, you know, for sins committed against God and neighbor, uh, it really uh, speaks to uh, the need for a continual return to the cross, you know. Uh, and it can also deal particularly well with extremes in, uh, you know, our thinking about sanctification. So one extreme might be perfectionism, you know, where I'm always sort of raised to new life, but I never have to die to anything. <laughs> Uh, and uh, kind of an over-realized picture of holiness. Uh, and on the other extreme, you know, it deals with the problem of fatalism, where I'm just dying all the time, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, but I can't seem to get out of that framework. Uh, and so, no, there is also the, the being raised to new life with Christ and so on. Uh, and so that's... Uh, that's one way of thinking about the Christian life, and it's helpful, uh, you know, uh, for dealing with uh, some of the extremes uh, in the theology of sanctification. Uh, but not everyone is always uh, thinking in terms of their guilt, you know, uh, and uh, not everyone is always asking about perfectionism or fatalism in the Christian life. And so we have a need then for other models of thinking uh, through what uh, it means to live in the spirit of Christ. Yeah, that's very helpful. I, you know, I came to faith in a Christian and missionary Alliance church in Puerto Rico, and I could definitely identify some of the salient points in this model. Uh, though I, those probably will cross to the second model too, because uh, from within that notion of, death and life and constant renewal mm -hmm. would you say that that touches on some of the pietistic uh traditions holiness um traditions too well it could be i mean it uh, i think you know the, the scriptures do call us to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect right which really comes down to sort of imaging um uh, you know his uh, imaging his love and his forgiveness and, and, and such things, his mercy. You know, the problem is when one, you know, thinks in a perfectionistic way. And so one raises the holiness bar way too high. <laughs> and, yes. and that could become a very oppressive kind of way of thinking about sanctification because, because then you have to sort of measure up uh, all the time. And so, uh, you know, if we can do that, uh, then we no longer really need Jesus. <laughs> and, you know, and I think the renewal model just reminds us that, you know, the Christian life is a life of daily repentance. Uh, it's not just being victorious all the time. There are victories, but also, you know, there is time for contrition and to receive God's gifts of forgiveness and pardon and so on. 
So, so yes, I mean, and I, you know, I try to also be self-critical. I mean, in the Lutheran tradition, for instance, we have the opposite problem potentially, which is the, the fatalism, <laughs> right? That we're sinners. We have that right. My goodness, you know, and, uh, and I think you see that in some Reformed traditions too, right? The, simul usus et peccator. Yeah. yeah, simul usus et peccator, you know, and, and with emphasis on the peccator sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you're sort of at the bottom, you know, of, of, of the waters here. Luther uses the image of being drowned uh, with Christ as a, as a way of thinking, you know, of, of you know, uh, dying with Christ, so drowning the old Adam, the old creature. The problem is when people start enjoying being at the bottom of the ocean for too long and, say, and begin to sort of boast in their, you know, uh, humble dying to self. Well, I mean, that's fatalism. So at some point, you're raised out of the waters too. <laughs> indeed, indeed. You know, indeed. so I think it, it could be helpful to kind of help you navigate uh, you know, through issues in the Christian life that we see in our churches sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, it reminds me that uh, whether it is in the Lutheran tradition or even in the broader Reformed tradition, uh, sometimes our doctrine of sin uh, overtakes everything mm. in relationship to anthropology, the doctrine of humanity, and particularly sanctification. Uh, and, uh, and, and then things like that happen. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, in, in, in your second uh, model, um, this is really interesting uh, because it actually be, brings to the forefront something that the global church is very aware of. Mm. Um, and you title it Facing Demons Through Prayer and Meditation, the Dramatic Model. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the Christian life is a drama, right? Where God and the devil are fighting for the souls of people, right? Mm. This is your spiritual warfare mm. uh, model of the Christian life, which again, is you see it in some traditions, perhaps more than others. But yes, in the global South, we have been especially, become especially aware, you know, of this sense that, you know, we don't see things in a secular way, but everything is kind of seen in terms of this cosmic, you know, a spiritual battle and struggle uh, between God and everything that opposes God. And so, you know, here you have more of the desert image as opposed to the death and resurrection. Life is a struggle in the desert where we are tempted, where, where God tests us as well in the midst of the devil's attacks. And so the way we stand firm in the desert, you know, is through the word and prayer or the gift of the spirit, you know, so that we might uh, stand firm against the evil spirit and, and this kind of thing, you know, and, and I think that is particularly helpful to deal with kind of the issue of vulnerability to habitual sin and temptation. I mean, we all have what I call deserts in our lives, ways of thinking or acting or speaking uh, areas in which we're most vulnerable to fall, you know, uh, into sin and, and kind of bondage, uh, uh, to evil things. And so this model helps us to uh, be vigilant and also to admit that vulnerability, you know, and then seek God's protection and God's, you know, the safety he provides in the midst of the desert. So I think this is simply an, another way. I mean, this is complementary, I think, to the renewal model. 
but it's also a, a vivid picture in his own right, you know. So then the Christian life here is about finding that word in prayer that's the oasis <laughs> in the desert. And I think it help, helps us to also uh, be accountable to each other in our struggles. And uh, the notion of a community that we can be vigilant with, because we all have this spiritual Achilles heel. So I think that's another model that I was also uh, thinking of. So it's not just redemption from sin, but it's also redemption from evil. And sanctification has to deal with, you know, uh, both of those realities in the Christian life. And it crosses over then to atonement theories, right? Uh, particularly with, you know, if we are reminded of Gustav Allen's typology, the dramatic model is the defeat of the powers. Um, but of course that he was talking about uh, what is happening in the cross. And we usually don't make the immediate connection in our daily lives of the community and in our mm -hmm. search for um uh, having the kind of life that in which the spirit is actually producing the fruit that is evident evidence of of uh, his work in us and sanctification um but we think about atonement oh yeah, yeah he defeated the powers mm. in the cross satan is defeated the enemy of the souls etc but we forget strands in the epistles well you know a struggle is not against other human beings You know, Paul would say Ephesians 6 or mm. you know, John talking about, you know, we struggle, yes, the flesh or the human nature and uh, the world and the enemy, you know, the, mm. the, the, the diabolos, the, yes. <laughs> um, which is make it very personal, right? Uh, it, it makes it, see, as Lewis, you start to talk about uh, a, a, a deep, true mythos or myth so that is that is a deep story in, yes. in which we are engaged that sometimes it's not that evident or we just don't mm -hmm. pay too much attention to we do pay attention to usually to the the flesh and the world mm. and the spirit of course yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but <laughs> which is <laughs> uh, depending on which tradition but particularly in north america at least when when people talk about it we i think that we often miss this point of facing the enemy yeah. that element of this of the christian life in which we acknowledge that god is also victorious over the powers no absolutely and you know christians in the global south are well aware of this you know we in in the in the north atlantic sometimes because of the influence of the enlightenment you know it, it's seen as kind of a little bit childish to think in terms of you know the active presence and power of the devil and his demons in the world, you know, but this is not a problem for global South Christians, you know, they, mm -hmm. they get it. I think in, you know, we, the, the models could be helpful to balance things out, you know, uh, you know, if you're preaching that, you know, the, the devil is uh, in, at fault all the time and minimize, you know, how we also need to, to repent, you know, uh, you know, then, You know, that's a problem. On the other hand, if you only, as you put it, think in terms of the flesh, the sinful flesh, but forget about the struggle with, you know, evil powers, then that's also an extreme. So by having the renewal and the dramatic model complement each other, you know, we have a richer picture of what sanctification is. And I, uh, it is clear in your book that uh, these models are not 
individualistic. These are not for just my personal application mm-hmm. of my own subjective life. <laughs> yes, there is subjectivity involved and we are part as individuals of a body, but the notion of doing life together in the body of Christ uh, permeates this, which takes us to the third model. Uh, you talk about sharing life together and you call this the sacrificial model. Yes, yeah, so this is the uh, church's participating by the Spirit in Christ's service, right? Uh, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Uh, Christ speaking to the sons of Zebedee, right, to his disciples. Uh, and so, you know, this is another way in which the Spirit forms us, uh, forms us after the likeness of Christ. And a particularly helpful image here is... Um, uh, Luther's happy exchange image for me. So the Christian life is about sharing joys and burdens. And in that way, we become a little Christ to each other. You know, I love that image. You know, we're formed to be little Christ to one another. And, uh, and so there's, the spirit uh, creates kind of a, an economy of life, if, if you will. Um, uh, you know, where we walk with one another and serve one another. Uh, in uh, you know in difficult times and so when you struggle with grief you know I am a Christ to you by bringing joy and when I am the one struggling with grief then you become a little Christ to me and so we become a communion an intercommunion of love Christ-like love in the spirit and so I think as you put it this model takes us away from an individualistic view of life you know where it's just me my God and the spirit in me and look how full of the spirit I am. Uh, well, maybe you're perhaps too full of yourself, you know. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, Amen. you know, we need to think in terms of life and the spirit in communal ways. And, you know, initially, I th- thought of the renewal model and the dramatic model as sort of personal sanctification models. But then I think the sacrificial model helped me to see that even the renewal and the dramatic models have a communal dimension to them. You know, so the renewal model is practices of reconciliation. And the uh, dramatic model is, you know, walking together with a community that is vigilant with us and keep us accountable. Um, and so, you know, life in the spirit uh, is uh, walking together too. And so this this is another model that I think deals more with the notion of uh, individualism, the problem of individualism, the need for community, which is so big. You know, you look at, uh, uh, you know, uh, already Gen Xers, but also millennials, a big emphasis on community. You know, what does the Christian life have to do with, uh, you know, making a difference? Uh, in our community. So I think this model, you know, uh, speaks to meaning and significance uh, in the world, in life, uh, as, you know, as, uh, you know, the biblical narratives portray life in terms of the we, as opposed to just the I. (laughs) True. True. Uh, we have an issue also with translations, uh, particularly in English, where the you can be you, the single person, or the you plural. Uh, in Spanish, it changes. It immediately changes uh, because 
the tú, the you, is ustedes. Immediately, uh, it is more literally plural, more literally uh, communal. In other language, that that happens, right? Um, so the sacrificial model, um, it you know, it reminds me that um, to be Christian is to always see ourselves within um, the connection of that we have to other lives, and our meaning is not self-created. It is in light of the body of Christ, um, mm. which um, when we talk about sanctification, we often are so focused on our own personal struggles, uh, victories and failures. But that element of delightful, sacrificial, loving dependence on the body of mm. Christ for that very process is it, just, just a beautiful, deep theological reality. Um, yeah, I was just yes. talking how that ministered to me. <laughs> no, yes, I mean we, uh, yeah, we we tend to I think in North America sometimes think very individualistically, and the presence of our, you know, Hispanic communities, for instance, in the United States, reminds us that Christian theology happens, you know, in the body with the body, and so on. And you know, it's interesting when you look at Christ's life in the Spirit; He's anointed to be the servant. You know, you know, at his baptism, the voice from heaven, you know, this is my beloved son, or you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I am well pleased being, you know, one of the servant sons from Isaiah. So the whole spiritual trajectory of Christ's life is a giving of oneself for another. And this, this is what he teaches his disciples then to be, you know, wash each other's feet, this kind of thing. <laughs> so it's a very... You know, the spirit from Christ to his body, the church, has this communal, you know, trajectory embedded in it, you know, from the head to the members and then among the members with one another. It's very communal. You know, th this is where I think the biblical narrative can be countercultural to our mm -hmm. tendency to make holiness just kind of an individualistic, personal thing. And your fourth model, actually. Uh places us with a great challenge that sanctification uh, also uh, brings the practices uh, and openness of welcoming the stranger. And you call it, this is the hospitality model. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, this goes back to my work among immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think the sacrificial model, I've, I felt that it could speak to kind of uh, the church, it tends to be a bit more internal, uh, kind of among ourselves. You know, we, we serve each other and become little Christ to one another. Uh, but there's also kind of the stranger, you know, the, the outsider, the one who maybe is not part of the family, uh, uh, so to speak. How do we deal with those neighbors? And so working with migrants, now in this case, you know, they are part of the church, but they work in communities uh, you know, where there, there might or not be a connection. Uh, but in general, whether in church or society, you know, we have those people who are seen as the outsiders, you know, as the, the ones who are not kind of in. And you have tons of biblical narratives that deal with this, you know. So Christ, Christ's own life in the spirit, his own mission takes him to places like uh, Samaria. 
Jesus himself, you know, is from Galilee, right? And so in Hispanic-Latina theology, right, with Virgilio Elizondo, we talked a lot about the Galilean location of Jesus's uh, uh, life and ministry. And so, you know, life in the Spirit is a life that, uh, you know, takes us to the margins, too. And uh, a story that I find very helpful for this is uh, Luke 17 and Jesus healing the 10 lepers and only one comes back to give thanks. And, you know, he's walking the border between Samaria and Galilee. I love this because both Galilee and Samaria would have been seen as kind of the place of outsiders. You know, they're not Jerusalem where you have, you know, the the spirit, right? Because that's where you have the temple and the, and the smart theologians. <laughs> But he walks out on this border, you know, where no one else wants to walk, Jesus walks. That's life in the spirit, you know, it's life in the margins and so on, dealing with these neighbors. And then who comes back to give thanks? One leper returns and it's a Samaritan leper, you know, a person who's twice marginalized. And so you have these stories. And then in the book of Acts, you think of someone like Philip right, who goes out to all these marginalized communities, whether it's the uh, Greek-speaking Jewish widows who feel that they're being left out of the distribution of, of food at, uh, at tables, or the Samaritans, right, or the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. And the question is, do any of these people belong to the kingdom of God? And the answer is, through Christ, they are, you know, and they, they be, they, they're in, you know, and so how does the church reflect this life in the spirit that Jesus lived and Philip, for instance, lived in the book of Acts? And so I think that's a model that deals with kind of sanctification in a different way. We don't think of sanctification often as, you know, life in the margins. Sometimes our churches are, especially at the institutional level, you know, they could be very comfortable in the center. <laughs> And this vehicle of sanctification is kind of uncomfortable. You know, it pushes you into places where the spirit is at work, even though we often don't see it. And I think this model deals with the need for welcoming. You know, you see also among Gen Xers and millennials and post-millennials, a big emphasis on welcoming the stranger, the outsider on hospitality, you know, the need for belonging, I think, which we see in, in society also. This is a story, as you put it before, right? a story in which we, the Spirit can bring us into and we can participate in Christ's life this way. You know, it reminds me that the hospitality model, uh, like you mentioned, it's not often that we think about sanctification in terms of uh, our social witness and our accepting of the other, making space from within the community of grace mm -hmm. uh, to accept the other who, for us initially, is the stranger, the foreigner, uh, and this is when I think in the context of the United States, there is a cognitive dissonance with many people. They know that the spirit is producing these communal virtues of graceful embrace of others. But then comes many apolitical ideologies and they want to inform how, to what extent, how ample, how prophetic or not, our hospitality should be. Mm. Um, so this is actually can be a radical virtue for hospitality. There has been a lot of work done on this, but to locate this model as part of the process of sanctification, I think is so refreshing. Um, mm. 
and at the same time energizing to see that that integral to our becoming like Jesus in the spirit is precisely the embrace of the other who is most vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think part of the reason why I wrote this book was that I wanted to give the church a kind of a spirit grammar, you know, oh, so that we yes. don't define holiness according to our political ideologies, but rather according to the story, right, of the spirit from Jesus to us, you know, and that then frames our witness in the world as opposed to other stories or some subjective spiritual experience that I, that I, that often fits less, less the biblical narrative and fits more some idea about how things should be already have with me, you know, <laughs> that I probably learned somewhere else. So I wanted the book to be a, a grammar to help us discern, uh, you know, our witness in the spirit, what Christ likeness looks like, what are the images, you know, and then pray for that. You know, I wanted the book to be almost an invitation to prayer. So, so you know, come Holy Spirit and form Christ in us, the one who goes out to the margins and brings in outsiders into the kingdom of God. So that becomes then a prayer. And you're right, that could become very countercultural sometimes. You know, in your fifth model, you know, it feeds from the previous four. Uh, you call it the work, pray, and rest, the devotional model. Mm. Um, now, people sometimes think of the devotional, the word devotional itself has been, I don't know, just abuse or even people say, would you have a devotional thought this morning? <laughs> people oh, say yeah. they, they they read one sentence or two, maybe one verse, and they wax eloquent on it and just pray about it. <laughs> but <laughs> you, of course, are not... <laughs> taking this to mean that uh tell us about the devotional model yeah so the devotional model i deals with you know devoted life you know what does a devoted life looks like and uh this has to do a lot with sort of creation in some ways you know uh, uh and here i picked up from uh, dietrich bangheifer right the, the the great theologian uh lutheran uh you know, who stood up against, you know, the Nazi regime and all of that stuff. And, um, you know, he speaks of what it means to be a creature in his commentary in Genesis. And, and he says, God has basically established a rhythm in life. And that rhythm involves, you know, the first day, right? There's evening and morning. And so there's time for repose and times for movement. And so Adam, you know, he's created to work the garden. So there's your movement but also created for a Sabbath, right? Uh, to take time to behold God's creation and give thanks. And you see the same cycle of sabbatical cycles in the life of Israel. Jesus exemplifies this kind of life. You know, he embodies what a devoted life is. He works, right, in the Father's mission, but he also goes out to the mountain to spend time with the Father in prayer, and so the Christian life is, you know, that life of prayer and activity and, you know, uh, but also I think play where we rejoice in God's gifts, you know, the kid in the candy store again. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so you're not thinking here in terms of, you know, guilt or shame or spiritual attack or, you know, uh, the notion of, of sacrifice for another 
is embedded, I think, in the notion of labor. You know, um, you're not thinking particularly hospitality right away. So it really becomes kind of a different image. And it, uh, and, it, and it kind of puts it all in a broader context of what it means to be a, a creature and rejoice in that. And this could be particularly helpful to deal with, you know, the problem of uh, workaholism, right? Uh, we have a lot of workaholics in church, and, uh, and we justify it because we have been, you know, given the task to do the mission, right? And so we want to see our lives reflected in Jesus in that way, right? That uh, uh, he's busy all the time. And yet he challenges us because he goes to the mountain too, right? And so it's like, how dare he go to the mountain? You know, he should be helping people. The crowds are helping, are seeking, uh, uh, you know, uh, help. Why does he go and pray? <laughs> but I think, you know, it's, I think here we were given a, a you know, uh, an opportunity to reimagine what it means to live in the spirit, you know. And so we're called to also have moments of quiet, uh, moments where we simply, you know, play in God's creation. And that too is a devoted life, you know. And it re-energizes us for service in the world. This is not about escaping the world and the needs of the world and and. and suffering neighbors this is about recharging it's about you know like saint basil the great you know he says the first step in sanctification is quiet hmm. i love that and that's so challenging because when i think of holiness the first thing i think of is activity you we must be doing something to be holy right no holiness is about doing nothing first it's about receiving you know <laughs> and we often forget that Indeed, receiving, and th th that is key to that. I mean, to particularly when we uh, are engaged in in any kind of role, wh whether if you're in, I don't know, Christian leadership, pastoral, if you are uh, a business person, a professional who wants to 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 be a good uh, steward of the gifts that you have and your position mm -hmm. to to be a visible witness to others. Um, this is something that we we need to be reminded of. We need to be recipients first in order to co-participate co in. Yes, absolutely. And Jesus himself models this, you know. I mean, Jesus, I mean, he allows the spirit free course in his life, you know. Uh, in a sense, even though he's God, in his humiliation, he becomes dependent on the spirit for his work and works in association with the spirit for our sake, you know? And so, you know, he also puts himself, uh, you know, his whole life before the father in prayer, you know? And so the spirit shapes his Christ-like life in us as well, you know? So what I like to ask people is, you know, where is your garden where you are the steward, right? And, and so everybody kind of knows what, what their garden or gardens uh, are. But I ask people, where is your mountain? You know, what, what's the place that that uh, that you retreat to to receive? Uh, and then, uh, what is your playground? Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I like for me that's music, right? That's where the orchestra comes in that we talked about earlier. 
That's the music, you know. It is kind of in between activity and, and, and rest, right? Because you, you still have to play a symphony, right? You can't wing a symphony. You have to, like, practice. <laughs> but it doesn't feel like work exactly, you know, because it's just a joy to do it, and it's a gift of creation, and, and uh, that's I think that's part of the question. I, I tell all my students, go get yourself a hobby. That will make helpful. you a better pastor and church leader. <laughs> Now that you mentioned your students, uh, you know, uh, of the five models that you just discussed, is there one or two models that your students appreciate the most that was more uh, edifying, more surprising to them or, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I would say for my students from the Center for Hispanic Studies, right, who are mostly first-generation immigrants, they really appreciate the hospitality model, you know, because they often feel excluded uh, from the church, not only from society, but even from the church sometimes because of their accent or the way they look or people having questions about their documented status or something like that, you know. So whatever the reason is, whether justify or not, they don't always feel that they're loved and, uh, and so on. So I think the hospitality model gives them a sense that life in the spirit is about being welcome into God's kingdom. Uh, for other students, I think the devotional model is big because they're so busy. They got a lot of homework and things to do and families to raise, you know, uh, especially those second career students. Um, and uh, I think they struggle with the notion that holiness also should include the time for, uh, you know, receiving from God uh, his gifts and rejoicing in them. Uh, they tend, tend to think that living, a, you know, a meaningful life is simply activity all the time. You know, so I think this is an eye opener for them. And they know that burnout is a huge issue in the church. And, you know, they don't want to be the next victim. <laughs> it is it is definitely a huge uh, issue. Um Now, um, now that you mentioned part of what the students appreciate more about these models, what would you say are the the main payoffs of the five models of certification? The, the things that you want to really get into when when you put a, a dogmatic journey and you land it in the life of the church mm. uh, for Christians, for Christian leaders, for pastoral ministry, for everyone. Um, how can these be useful? And I think that you have anticipated uh, some of some of these things uh, before, but how are these useful for pastoral care, for example, for pastoral growth, for discipleship? Yeah, um, well, you know, maybe this is better dealt with through a story, if I may. I mean, I remember sharing some of these models of sanctification at a Bible study in my congregation, and. Uh, You know, so I think I talked about the renewal model and the dramatic model, and the third one was the sacrifice. I think it was those three. And then I asked people who were there, so which of these models do you identify with the most and why? And one lady said to me, definitely the first one, the death and resurrection, because I always feel guilty about this sin Uh, that I committed years ago and it never goes away. And so I feel like the Christian life is this continual return to the cross, you know, that I am God's child. 
uh, that I have been forgiven, you know. So, so to me, that's that spoke to me, you know. And then uh, another gentleman said, I definitely feel like, you know, I'm in the desert. You know, I'm doubting God's promises of care. I'm tempted to do it because I haven't been able to find a job, you know, for years. I feel like I'm not wanted. This was an older gentleman, too, you know, uh, that because he was old, that maybe he couldn't, you know, uh, really you know, be seen as someone uh, who could uh, help, you know, uh, who could hold a job and so on. So he was, the life for him was a struggle. Uh, tempted to doubt God's promises, you know, he fell under attack by the evil one, right? And uh, and then there was this, uh, I think, probably a millennial, you know, a younger guy. He says, I just want to go and help people. He said, I just, <laughs> just want to go out to the neighborhood and see what people say. Uh, what they need, you know, how could we be of service to them? So they were in entirely different places, right? Uh, one was thinking in terms of the need for forgiveness due to guilt. Another one was thinking about the need for safety and assurance in God's promises with the word, right, in the midst of uh, spiritual attack. And the third one was thinking the sacrificial model. I mean, he was thinking in terms of sharing gifts and joys and burdens with people in the neighborhood. And it, and that, I think, was eye-opening for me because it showed me that people are in different places in their lives. It just sort of shows once again that sanctification isn't a homogeneous concept, as we uh, said earlier. And so... The payoff of writing the book is that it gives you kind of a toolbox for ministry. It helps you to discern with the people that you serve, what are their spiritual needs? You know, you know, is it pardon for guilt? You know, is it protection in the midst of the vulnerability to spiritual attack? You know, is it the need for meaningful service in the world? And community, you know, is it the need for a word of welcome when one feels like an outsider? You know, is it rest in the middle of a busy life? What is it? And each problem requires a different story, a different way in which we're invited to participate in Christ's life and the spirit. You know, each situation requires a different kind of prayer. Come Holy Spirit and form and shapes us in this moment for this, you know. So that's, I think, the payoff, that now you have kind of a variety of lens to discern the Spirit in light of our different spiritual needs. And those sanctification will look different for everybody at different points in life. And in real life, many of these models will intersect, right? Mm-hmm. Um you know, I could be, I could have a foot in a couple of these at the same time, and that's okay. Uh, life is complex, and the spirit can handle it. So that's the good news. <laughs> yes, indeed, the spirit can handle it. Um, you know, your dogmatic work uh, has this programmatic, missional, ecclesial dimension that you always try to bridge uh, from the get-go. I, I've seen uh, other of your books, whether they're in Spanish or in English, and uh, you identify as a theologian of the church, for the church, mm-hmm. uh, embedded in the church. Um, how important it is for theologians that are working 
on pneumatology, on Christology, on Trinitarian theology, to not lose sight of their embeddedness in mm. the lives of people. Uh, clearly, your work here in this book, it is inevitable to see ourselves located within the life of the body of Christ and yeah. doing life together. And um, whether it is through the renewal model, through through the... F- prayer and uh, facing the dramatic model against the evil powers through mm. sacrificial love, hospitality, and devotion. How important is this, you know, instinct of being always embedded within the life of the church and not simply talking to the church? Mm. No, I think that's, that's a huge issue, I think, for me. It goes back, I think, to the notion of formation. You know, the the humble curiosity. I think if you don't know who you are and where you come from, it's very difficult to contribute something that is meaningful in the world. You know, I think that there are several types of spiritualities out there, and I think we need to listen to our neighbors and see what they're thinking, you know, how they envision a spiritual life and so on. But if you don't have a story that helps you discern what that is, that guides your thinking about that, um, you know, then everything becomes sort of my own subjective view of how I think things are. And that's actually a very uh, non-communal individualistic way of thinking. It's not an ecclesial way of thinking because I always tell my students, the more you do theology, Uh, in an island, the more heretical you'll become (laughs) because you you have, there's no accountability at all. And I think the church is, you know, that family that kind of keeps you accountable. And like in all family, you know, families will have a little fights here and there. (laughs) And, you know, we'll push each other. But at least we're trying to reflect together on, you know, the story that we have inherited in scripture and also in the church's thinking you know, over the centuries about, uh, you know, the word of God and so on. So I think I can't in good conscience form others if I am not myself formed, you know, uh, uh, in in the church uh, by the spirit of Christ, you know. And so to me, it goes back to the importance of um, offering a grammar through this book that uh, is grounded in the stories of the spirit that we have inherited. You know, uh, we might say, if I may, uh, from our mother, the church, (laughs) you know, to use a family metaphor. Yes. You know, um, uh, and so I think I wanted to write a book uh, as a way to ground in the story of the spirit you know, what spirituality actually looks like. You know, in some ways, uh, to go back to your point about the, the renaissance of pneumatology, um, because of the renaissance in Trinitarian theology, I think the more I think about it, I wrote the book to make the theology of the Trinity practical. Hmm. Because it grounds sanctification and divine agency, but it's, it's, you know, the spirit of God in and through Jesus, and then how that shapes us to be like Jesus. So it was spirit Christology becomes kind of a practical way to get at why is the theology of the Trinity important? 
and what is it you know how does it form us to be you know a gas people in the world today um, towards the end of the book, you mentioned, you say precisely along these lines, given the intersectionality and simultaneity of these models, they should be approached with flexibility in a contextualized way that accounts for the actual lived experiences of persons in our families, congregations, and communities. And then you say models can enrich our theological understanding, worship, devotional life, pastoral care, and missional engagement. So I, I think that's the, a good way of putting how these models can actually inform and traverse uh, so many aspects of the church's life and the church's own seeking faithful and practical understanding of the Lord of the Lord of life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Leopoldo, any any last thoughts that you want us to keep in mind as we uh, learn and study your book? Well, I would say, um, see the book, I like to, I think, stress this point, which I don't think I did enough in the book. Um, but I think, you know, see it as an invita invitation to prayer. You know, um, I think when, when you write theology, at the end of the day, you're talking about God. And you're talking about our need, you know, for God to shape and guide us in, the, in our journey. You know, and um, and I think what this book tries to do is tries to, you know, invite us to ask the Spirit, uh, uh, you know, in His generosity, to descend and do His work and shape us in the way that you know uh, we need at this or that time. Uh, so I think you know it's okay to say, "Come, sculptor Spirit." You know, and uh, shape us the way we need best. And also for those of us who work, also, uh, you know, in the church, uh, guide us so that we might guide others in their spiritual journeys. So, you know, that's my invitation and my exhortation uh, to those who read the book. And, uh, and also, if you have other ways of thinking about life in the spirit is an, also an invitation to say, you know, put your own model out there. Uh, you know, we're learning together, right? We're walking together here. We talk about doing theologia in conjunto, theology in togetherness, together. And this is a, a, a beautiful example of that. Uh, Dr. Leopoldo Sanchez, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, for being here for this excellent conversation, edifying and also uh, an open-ended invitation uh, to keep working together in the deep life of uh, spirit Christology as a dogmatic tradition, but also in the deep life of living in the spirit of Christ. Thank you so much again. And uh, we are um, at the end of this interview, my first one, as I said, I'm Jules Martinez Olivieri. I'm your new co-host on Unscript, and I'm happy to look forward to the many opportunities that we'll have and other learning and dialogical experiences. Thank you. Muchas gracias. You have been listening to Onscript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. 
If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.